Welcome to Good Heavens, a podcast about how the heavens declare the glory of God. The 16th and 17th century astronomer Johannes Kepler is credited with discovering the laws of how planets move. Remarkably, he did so without the aid of a telescope. Instead, he was able to use the detailed observational data about the visible planets, collected by his rather bombastic Danish friend with half a nose and a moose for a pet, Tycho Brahe, who also didn't use a telescope. In 1618, at the end of Kepler's book he eventually published on the laws of planetary motion, Kepler included a prayer, something you would be hard-pressed to find in any modern textbook on astronomy today. Quote, O you, who by the light of nature arouse us in a longing for the light of grace, so that by means of that you can transport us into the light of glory, I give thanks to you, Lord Creator, because you have lured me into the enjoyment of your work, and I have exulted in the works of your hands. Behold, now I have consummated the work to which I pledged myself, using all the abilities that you gave to me. I have shown the glory of your works to men, and those demonstrations to readers, so far as the meanness of my mind can capture the infinity of it. For my mind was made for the most perfect philosophizing. If anything unworthy of your deliberations has been proposed by me, a worm born and raised in a hog wallow of sin, which you want mankind to know about, inspire me as well to change it. If I have been drawn by the admirable beauty of your works into indiscretion, or if I have pursued my own glory among men, while engaged in a work intended for your glory, be merciful, be compassionate, and forgive. End quote. Almost exactly 400 years after the publication of Kepler's work on planetary motion, a beautifully illustrated coffee table book published by Dorling Kindersley about stars, written for a wider lay audience, makes absolutely no mention about God whatsoever. In the opening pages, we are told, quote, gradually, by using more and more powerful telescopes and other sensing instruments, Astronomers are unlocking the secrets of galaxies, along with gaining an understanding of the nature of mysterious phenomena, such as dark matter, in which galaxies seem to be embedded. End quote. While there is no doubt that the invention of the telescope has radically revolutionized our understanding of the universe, over the course of the last four centuries, since Galileo trained his humble little spyglass on Jupiter to discover its four largest moons, most of what constitutes modern astronomy today has lost its focus upon God as the creator of it all. The secrets of the universe are no longer revelations about God's invisible attributes, but primarily about what the universe is made of. If the universe is mostly empty, as modern astronomy tells us, then why do governments and big research institutions keep building bigger and more sophisticated telescopes? What then is the ultimate focus of telescope technology and astronomy today? Four centuries ago, many involved in the design and construction of the telescope were committed Christians. They understood that the heavens were the handiwork of God and that in further studying and contemplating the visible cosmos, they would be able to know something more about what God is like. But today, telescopes are not built for the primary purpose of understanding the universe as God's creation, but rather as a means of answering the big questions about existence apart from God. Most every time there is a remarkable telescope discovery of some kind, 
Somewhere in the press release, you are likely to find an astronomer talking about big existential questions like, where did we come from? Why does the universe exist? And what is our place in the cosmos? Perhaps the myth of our time is that our sophisticated technological inventions can actually answer these questions. Consider these thoughts behind a recent public unveiling of the image of a star from the newly launched James Webb Space Telescope. Listen carefully to what the host says and what the astronomer says. The James Webb Space Telescope is the largest and most complex space telescope ever built. This is the result of 20,000 people from around the world working together. Webb will solve mysteries of inner solar system, look beyond distant worlds around other stars, and probe the mysterious structures and origins of our universe and our place in it. Webb is an international program led by NASA with its partners, ESA, and the Canadian Space Agency. This telescope is working better than ever expected following its successful launch in December 2021 and the start of science operations in July 2022. Today, we are sharing with you a never-before-seen image from Webb. I'm so honored to be with the team that's going to share more about this image and what we've been learning from this powerful telescope. Here up on the screen is the newest image that's come out from NASA's James Webb Space Telescope. The beautiful Wolf Rayet star. Amber, can you tell us a little bit more about this image? The light from that star has been traveling through space for about 15,000 years, 15,000 light years away, uh, until it hit the detectors on the telescope. And the material that you're seeing around the central star that looks like dust is dust. Uh, and so at the end of a star's life, it, they shed their outer material, their outer layers out into the rest of the universe. And I think this is one of the most beautiful concepts in all of astronomy. This is Carl Sagan's stardust concept. The fact that the iron in your blood and the calcium in your bones was literally forged inside of a star. Did you happen to catch what the host said? Webb will allegedly solve some mysteries about our solar system and perhaps enlighten us about our place in the cosmos. The astronomer, thinking of Carl Sagan, opined that we came from the dust of stars. But no telescope has ever confirmed this assumption, though it remains widely popular today. If God finally does not exist, then the scientists must account for how the carbon in our bodies ultimately came to be. And since the only natural engines known to scientists capable of producing carbon and the other heavier elements found in our bodies are supernovae, exploding stars, then it follows that the stuff we are made of must have come from these stars. But no telescope or microscope or any other scientific instrument has ever solidly demonstrated the connection between supernovae and human sentience. Curiously enough, Johannes Kepler was the last astronomer to have discovered the last known supernova within our Milky Way galaxy. SN 1604, the Kepler supernova, was found in the constellation of Ophiuchus, the serpent handler. When asked by others what he thought the supernova might mean, Kepler said he thought it best for people to, quote, examine their sins and repent, end quote. If the invention of the telescope tells us anything, it is, at the very least, an affirmation of the preacher's words in the book of Ecclesiastes, quote, Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. End quote. While telescopes certainly have revealed innumerable, breathtaking wonders of God's creation, we as sinful human beings tend to become more fascinated with what our hands have made 
rather than what God has made. It seems the telescope technology today has become more about the telescopes themselves than about the heavens and the God who fashioned them all for his glory. No telescope, however sophisticated, is going to answer our deepest existential questions. Thinking that our inventions can tell us more about ourselves than what God tells us about who we are is simply old-fashioned idolatry. There is, truly, nothing new under the sun. Here on part one of our brief overview of the history of the telescope, Wayne and I chat a little bit about the first telescopes, the two basic kinds of telescopes, and some of the fascinating discoveries made by astronomers who were some of the first to turn their little spyglasses heavenward. Well, good heavens, Wayne. It is Christmas time, and uh, Jesus has come into the world. We celebrate his birth, and uh, of course, you know, we did a whole episode on Star of Bethlehem. You can check that out. Uh, but uh, this week, good heavens, Wayne, we're going to talk about something that is uh, not usually in our field of view, to be punny, <laughs> uh, ironically. What are we talking about today? Well, telescopes and uh, kind of the history of telescopes, I guess. Yeah, a uh, scattershot history. Wayne and I are not uh, pretending that we're going to be Encyclopedia Britannica's on the subject of telescopes. Uh, but as we always try to do in on this podcast is somehow enable you to think about everything in terms of how it points to Jesus, maybe. And uh, we don't want to over-spiritualize man's invention. But there's some really fascinating stories and interesting tales in the history and development of the telescope. And so we will just be having a random conversation about telescopes. And uh, we are sorry in advance if we left out your favorite uh, telescope anecdote. Uh, so anyway, Wayne, let's lead off with some scripture. You have a verse and, uh, and I have a verse. Good place to start. Why don't you lay down the verse that you want to talk about today? Okay. Yeah, this is... Uh in Psalm one of one forty seven, Psalm one one forty seven verse four, it says, "He determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name." Now that's the uh, NIV, and uh, in different Bible translations, there's some interesting differences in how this is translated. Sometimes, some versions will say he counts the number of the stars. Um. But I was just thinking about the fact that no matter how much observing the human beings do, we never see all the stars, and we 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 could never count them all. And uh, God is uh, God is beyond us in this, Dan. Right. And, uh, and human beings uh, don't name all the stars. We only, we mostly number them. But there's relatively limited number of them that we name uh, because they are either br the brighter ones or the more visible ones, the more, the more commonly studied ones, we've named them. But Right. If you have a good astronomy app on your iPad or iPhone and you zoom into some of these stars, it's remarkable that how, how, uh, how these apps have improved over the years. But you can zoom into stars and what you'll notice in most apps is that stars have a uh, very boring nomenclature like DC 752936821. Um, <laughs> so yeah. that does give credence to to the to the biblical text that uh, the stars are numbered. But uh as uh you remember in uh, Genesis 15 when God takes Abram outside and uh, he says count the stars Abram if you're able <laughs> yeah, I, I yes. know how many there are. <laughs> <laughs> if you're able. <laughs> uh, do you know how many there are? Um, but his point was not to, to tease Abraham, maybe a little bit, but he says your descendants will be as innumerable as the stars in the sky. And I think it uh, the passage you read in Psalm echoes uh, the pa a passage in Isaiah that I like. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. He, yes. calls, he, he numbers all of them. He calls them all by name and not one of them is missing. Because of the strength of his might. 
um, that uh, that God knows how many there are. I mean, there are probably, I'm sure, because I don't know, where do our numbering, our names for numbers stop? I know that after a certain amount, we don't have names for numbers, as far as I know. But anyway, that's another topic. But there's there's more stars in the sky than we have names for numbers. Uh, it's just, Well, the, if you want to name a star, there are certain times, I think the International Astronomical Union gives people opportunity to name stars but mm. they do it on some sort of schedule i think i don't you know, yeah I don't try to name one but there are websites out there that uh, say that you can buy a certificate and name a star and it gives you a position but that's not international Astrono- astronomical union endorsed um you pay a yeah pay a certain fee to a website and get a certificate with a star and its location on it i mean it's kind of fun yeah. but uh, yeah it's not internationally recognized you know right um, I have a verse in addition to what we've been talking about. It comes at the end of Paul's chapter in 1 Corinthians 13 where Paul is speaking about the excellence of love. And, of course, he begins, If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but I do not, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. <laughs> if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge... And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. So in other words, you could know everything about the universe, Wayne, and not have love, and it wouldn't amount to anything. Right. So we come to the end of the chapter, uh, verse 12, which is just the next to the last verse. There's 13 verses in chapter 13. But Paul says, for now we see in a mirror dimly. But then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Of course, Paul is talking about how we understand God in the flesh, this side of heaven. We get a picture, a reflection, but it is a dim one. But eventually we will know. uh, We know in part now, but then we will fully know as God does. Not, Not omnisciently, but we will know more much more um, when we see God face to face. But I liked the reference nonetheless, though he was not talking about stars in this particular verse. He is talking about ourselves. But uh, but I think it's an apt, pardon the pun, reflection of, uh, <laughs> of astronomy. Uh, Gosh, I'm... We can't help the parallels and puns in this program. I oh, think. they're coming. There's yeah. more. I got more. And the, uh, we see in the glass darkly or in a mirror darkly. That right. really is a description of the way telescopes were right. early on. Right, right. Now, in Greece, I, I check me if I'm wrong, but I'd have to go back and look at my archaeological anthropology history of Greece and Rome. But I think a mirror in the Greco-Roman world would have been polished metal, maybe? Yeah. Uh, they didn't. They yes. certainly didn't have glass as we know glass mirrors today. Yeah, even at the time of Isaac Newton, Dan, in the 1600s or 1700s, they, they didn't, they couldn't make good glass mirrors then. Yeah. Because they didn't have a good coating that could really reflect yes. uh, very well. So if you tried to make a mirror out of glass, it really didn't work very well. Yeah. And so they would try to use some alloys and make a real shiny metal um, to, right. to use for a mirror. Right. And I know, though, in the history of human beings, there has been a lot of pottery and what we might call glassware, um, but nothing like the mirror in your bathroom uh, that we have today. Um, but that's the, the nature of, of telescopes in general, Wayne. Um, there are, as you know, two basic kinds and i think that's that'll serve as a basis for your understanding if you know nothing about telescopes don't worry we don't either (laughs) not a whole lot so uh, we won't be overly technical about this it should be an enjoyable romp through uh through ultimately why why you know the bigger question is why are we making telescopes in the first place of course now why do we want to why do we want to do this but um there are the two kinds of telescopes wayne why don't you tell us about the two basic kinds and structures of telescopes before we get into some detail yeah so uh, the early telescopes were uh, of a kind that are called refractors uh, refracting is talking about bending light and with a curved lens though so the 
So lenses are important uh, to understand a little bit, and and it's about telescopes. So there's basically two kinds of lenses, the convex lens and the concave lens. So the way to remember this is the concave caves in. Uh, It curves Mm -hmm. in an inward way, Mm -hmm. uh, and the convex curves outward. Like a fish eye. Yeah, so the convex is thicker in the middle and uh, thin at the edges, mm-hmm. whereas the uh, convex is the other way around. It's thinner in the middle. The early ones were um, convex more. The early telescopes were refractors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they were talking. The earliest telescopes started to use glass. Um, glass became so the lens. The, the the idea of the telescope what came first the <laughs> the mirror or the lens um, the lens came first using glass to focus starlight or light from the heavens yes uh, yeah yeah and um, I'll just just a brief note here well we'll get into it we'll get into it and so there's the the reflect the the refracting which uses uh, lenses glass lenses to focus light. And then there's the reflecting, and you can imagine that the reflecting is the mirror-related. Wayne, what's the difference? How do these both, what's the difference between how these two work? Well, the refractors um, are, they're, they're, they're simpler to make when you have a small one. But as you make it bigger, so you see, when they first started making telescopes, Dan, they didn't think of them really as primarily for looking at stars. They thought of them as for looking at something at a distance on yeah, the Earth. Yeah, they had military use initially. Yeah, they, the uh, military generals or whatever would use them. But um, And there's apparently some early ideas for, on how it could be done without people actually making them and um you you know there's a man he was uh i think he was dutch or his name was hans lippershe yes who made one actually before galileo but again that was it was not intended for looking at the stars and galileo based on a description he read of what lippershe did Galileo uh, tried to improve on it for uh, he thought of it and Galileo thought of it for looking at stars so Galileo tried to make it with a little more magnification let me give you a little background a little fun background about Hans Lippershey uh, Lippershey and uh, this is a a uh, the given by Prince Maurice who was the patron science and head of the Belgian army in the early 1600s. And uh, this is a little excerpt from the States General, who was the governing body of the Netherlands, and among whose documents was uh, an entry dated October 2nd, 1608. And it, it reads this way. This is, uh, again, you said Lippershey was not making lenses for the sake of using telescopes for astronomical purposes. But uh, consider this. October, 6, October 2nd, 1608, on the petition of Hans Lippershey, a native of Wessel, an inhabitant of Mittelberg, spectacle maker, inventor of an instrument for seeing at a distance, was proved to the states, praying that the said instrument might be kept secret, Wayne, and that a privilege oh, yeah. for 30 years might be granted to him, by which everybody might be prohibited from imitating these instruments. So isn't that interesting that the original telescope just is just before Galileo and uh, his discoveries with the telescope that he modified, but it was a top secret uh, in the Netherlands uh, among yeah. the Belgian army. Shh, don't tell everybody what Hans made. <laughs> right. That's they wanted cool. to have an advantage over other armies. That's right. Um, but th- there it. was no hint in Lippershey's uh, invention that it, this was going to be used for astronomical purposes yeah no i think it's worth making a note here that at that time that was back in the when was lippershey was that in the 1500s 
beginning of the 17th century, 1608 was that letter that I wrote. 1608, so that was early 1600s. Okay, Mm -hmm. so before this, going back to like 1200 or 1300, I think, they started making lenses uh, for uh, glasses or magnifying glasses. So they had something like that before this, but they hadn't put together things in a way to make an actual telescope. You have to have you normally have either two uh, lenses or or a mirror and a lens or a combination of lenses and mirrors. But the when they started using telescopes to look at things in space, they wanted more and more magnification. They wanted them bigger to gather more light because you need it to be uh, a, a bigger size and the width of the of the lens or the mirror so that you will gather more light. Um, but when you make these lenses larger and thicker, then you begin to have problems <clears throat> because see a lens, it will, because of the thickness of the lens, uh, varying, it will bend light different degrees. And so the, the colors didn't focus together and that's called chromatic aberration. So, uh, so as they tried to make bigger lenses, they ran into this problem of chromatic aberration. So the, it, it sort of blurs the colors and spreads them out. So it would look like sort of uh, colored rings around what you're trying to look at. And it would, re- it would reduce the sharpness of it. And so that was one of the motivations for going to mirrors. Because mirrors... Uh, are easier to make them large so that they can be bigger and gather more light. But early reflecting telescopes, they still had the limitation that they couldn't make a good mirror with glass. But so over time, they eventually figured out how to put better uh, reflecting services on the back of glass so they would reflect better. Uh, so, but they, for astronomy, it's always been better to use the reflecting telescopes mainly because they're easier to make, they're easier to grind and get them in the right shape. And um, they're, so they're easy to make them bigger. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Easier to make them large. Yeah, yeah. Now, we're, we're kind of getting a little ahead of the story here because... Uh, we're we're in the 17th century, turn of the 17th century, 1608, Hans Lippershey, and we're about to jump into Galileo's telescope. Um, let's talk about one of your favorites, Johannes Kepler, because Kepler was very interested in optics, though he had bad eyesight. Um, yeah. Tycho, as you know, had his Uraniborg Observatory on the island of Haven. I don't know how to pronounce that correctly. Yeah, Van. I think it's pronounced Van. But. Um, but he made detailed observations, but uh, he kept all of his observations secret. Yeah. Uh, and it was Kepler with bad eyesight who did all the math based on Tycho's careful observations, but uh, neither of them had the advantage of the telescope. Well, Tycho Brahe is amazes me because he made special instruments for observing stars with the naked eye and when you do that you end up making these large contraptions <laughs> that <laughs> you have to make it large so that you can accurately measure angles which was the challenge of it and, and, and Tico was really good at building devices for this so, so he get, did all his observation without a telescope then eventually Kepler got to use that data and Kepler figured out the orbits of the planets. And I wrote in, in our book that my chapter is the story of how they did that. Well, <clears throat> so later on, after Tycho was dead, I think, I'm not sure if he, was, he had died before this, but Galileo uh, made his telescope. Let, let, me, um, for, let me pause there and read Galileo's... Uh, the description of Galileo's first telescope. I have it here. Okay. Um, here it is. A tube at first of lead. So think of a lead tube, kind of like a, an old plumbing pipe or something. And Galileo, this is Galileo's own, own words. In the ends of this tube, 
I fitted two glass lenses, both plain on one side, but on the other side, one spherically convex, you described that earlier, and the other concave. Then, applying my eye to the concave lens, I saw objects satisfactorily large and near, for they appeared one-third of the distance off and nine times larger than when they are seen with the natural eye alone. And that's Galileo's description. So it was a long tube with uh, a convex and a concave lens, one at each end that magnified objects in the cosmos. So that's Galileo's early description of this. And um, then he sa- he talks about how people were in awe and wonder and astonishment of what he did. And, he, and Galileo goes on to say, many noblemen and senators, although of great age, mounted the steps of the highest church towers at Venice in order to see the sails and, and shipping that were so far off that it was two hours before they were seen steering full sail into the harbor without my spyglass. <laughs> For the effect of my instrument is such that it makes an object 50, uh, and there's a miglia, I think that's an Italian term for distance, off appear as large and as near as they've if, as if it were only five. So people are marveling at how far away you can see with Galileo's uh, device. And so now uh, we pick up the story with Kepler. And uh, what do you have there? Where, how does the story continue with Kepler? What's going on? There's a, a book that you and I both read about uh, Kepler and Galileo and such. And uh, it was a book by um, Kitty Ferguson. Ferguson. Mm-hmm. I have it in my lap here. There's a section in there that tells about this. So there was a book that Galileo wrote about his uh, discoveries with the telescope, and it was in Latin. It was called Sidereus Nuncius, or the Starry Message. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, well, so Galileo sent copies of this book and a small telescope to a, a number of uh, prominent uh Kings or officials in Britain, I mean, not Britain, but in, in Europe and various places. And uh, so he didn't send a telescope to Kepler, but um, Kepler basically got to borrow a, a copy of the book, and then he later got to borrow a telescope and used it with other people. A group of other people and got together to use it. So, having a telescope was a rare thing, and they, they, they got Kepler got a group of people together to try it out, basically. Uh, but Galileo's telescope was would have been kind of uh, about two or three feet long. He had a couple of different ones, and it was really narrow. So the lens was not very, very wide, and. Um, so it didn't to get around the problem of the chromatic aberration when they made the telescope bigger they had to make them really really long to get the focal length greater mm-hmm. 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 so um, anyway so Kepler saw uh, Galileo's book and Galileo saw in his telescope the moons of Jupiter, right? Let me read to you what Galileo said in his own yeah. words about his discovery. Yeah. So he discovers the moons of Jupiter, the four main moons. There's more, but uh, mm-hmm. he discovers these in January of 1609. And uh, he says, uh, Galileo says, these are his words, quote, At the first hour of night, when I inspected the celestial constellations through a spyglass, that Jupiter presented himself. And then he goes on to say, I infinitely render grace to God that it has pleased him to make me alone the first observer of an admirable thing kept hidden all these ages. And then he goes on to say, I propose great things for inspection and contemplation by every explorer of nature. Great, I say, because of the excellence of the things themselves, because of their newness, unheard of through the ages. And uh, that's his first words and initial reaction upon seeing uh, the little what he first thought were stars. 
Um, but then obviously these four moons were orbiting Jupiter, and that seemed to be one of the first biggest surprises and maybe confirmations of the Copernican theory or the Copernican suggestion, <laughs> as, as maybe we might say, of, uh, of heliocentrism. Yeah, and uh, so some people called them planets initially, but uh, Galileo was showed really they were moons, and that's what Kepler expected. So it was taken to support the Copernican view because it showed that not everything rotated around Earth, or revolved around Earth, I should say. Um, Kepler's Kepler's response to this was a little bit of of an agitation. Um, do you have your Katie Ferguson book? I have a section yeah, here. Um, yeah. if, if you look on page 323, um, this, by the way, for our listeners, if you're wondering what this book, great book. It's called Tycho, Tycho and Kepler, The Unlikely Partnership That Forever Changed Our Understanding of the Heavens by Kitty, with a K, Ferguson. And um, this is on page uh, 323. And uh, Ferguson says, Kepler's enthusiasm about the discovery of the planets, of, of the moons, was tinged with anxiety over whether these discoveries were planets or moons around one of the other planets. And his friend, von Wackenfels, who told Kepler about Galileo's discovery, wasn't sure, but Kepler said they surely must be moons because he had established with his polyhedral theory that there could be only six planets. So the debate was on. Moons, planets, what are these, right? Right. The the news about the telescope was what Kepler expected and, and he was very supportive of Galileo. He wrote back a quick letter to Galileo uh, basically agreeing, uh, affirming that he's, he was right about this and he, he understood he agreed and he thought it was excellent work and he was very praiseworthy. he was praising Galileo. Well, that was not the reaction Galileo got from most other scientists of the time, and many other scholars were kind of skeptical uh, of what Galileo was finding. Didn't they think some of them thought it was witchcraft when they they didn't want to look through the telescope? Didn't they? Yes, um, there were yeah. some that reacted that way. So there right. was a lot of misconceptions about what he had actually done. Uh, I think um, for a while, but uh, Kepler was uh, agreeing with him. Um, but Kepler was, and Galileo, uh, you know, it's not like they were close to each other or they knew each other well. And there was some back and forth that was some a little misunderstanding of each other, I think, um, for a while in some of it. So, so now, so some of Kepler's comments, I think Galileo may have taken as a criticism. Um, but I think Kepler was more trying to clear up certain facts. And, yeah, uh, he was very careful and fastidious. He about was his trying data. to keep people from misunderstanding. I think mm-hmm. more. But uh, Galileo tended to be somebody who didn't react well to anything that was like a criticism. He was a little spicy. <laughs> yeah, <You know? laughs> so he didn't react really well to some of it. So. Galileo had the telescope. He made some important observations with it, and he he made a, I don't know two or three different versions of it. He got his magnification up to twenty or twenty three times. I think uh, he was able to make out mountains on the moon, for example, and and so his even just observations of the moon showed different different things than what anyone expected. Because they thought of the moon as sort of a perfect sphere. Yeah. Well, in the, is, uh, a little side note there, Wayne, I think I've shown you these pictures. Uh, last year, or just this past year, I I was out with my uh, reflecting telescope, my 10-inch mirror in my Dobsonian uh, light canister, I call it. And uh, yeah. I was taking pictures with my smartphone of the moon. And I found, I forgot the name of the crater. I'll have to go back and look at it. But I, I was taking pictures of a crater. And I... I found the crater online, and I, in my picture, I captured a shadow in this crater that I could not find anywhere online. Backyard astronomy, NASA, um, surfaces of the moon, Google Moon. I couldn't find this shadow on 
<laughs> the internet anywhere. And this is a well-known crater. I forgot the name. I was staring at it. And I have the picture on my phone. And I determined, I found out how big the crater was. Um, it's a couple of miles, I think, maybe maybe more. But given the given the uh, the dimension of this crater, I was astonished to find that my shadow must have been a mile or more in length. I think something like that. And I'm still I got to show it to an astronomer or something. But uh, speaking of Galileo and moons and mountains and things, you know, uh, backyard astronomy is now in, in the technology that we have in telescopes and cell phones and everything that we can do. You can discover stuff in your own backyard. Like yes. Galileo, you know, it's, it you don't still have to, happens today. Yeah, it still happens today. People are discovering comets and things and weird stuff in their in their backyards, and this is exactly what Galileo did: made a homemade telescope, made his own discoveries. Yeah, and, and uh, the important thing about Galileo, he was beginning to be quantitative about it. So he actually estimated the height of mountains on the moon. That's really cool. From his telescope. Because uh, he knew how much magnification it was, so there was, there were ways he could do that. Uh, so he was beginning to do some really neat things for the time. And uh, to, back in uh, 2009, Dan, there was some people who put together. They wanted to put together a very inexpensive telescope that could be used by uh, uh, school kids. And and people could have a, access to a really inexpensive telescope, so they call it the Galileo scope. And the idea is that it's similar to what Galileo had, except that it's it's got more lenses available for it, and so it's it's really better than Galileo's in ways. Uh, it's called the Galileo scope, and you can buy them for about forty or fifty dollars. Uh, there's also a, a solar filter that can be uh, purchased for it. So with the various lenses, you can use it different ways. And uh, it's made to be something that it's easy to easy to handle and it's not real fragile. And it's something that teachers can use with, with their kids in their classes. Oh, that's neat. Or, that's or, really cool. Or, or parents with, at home would be. It's a reflector, a refractor, I should say. It's not a reflector. So it's got a lens it's using glass lenses. Yeah, and it's very inexpensive, and and they even have the achromatic lenses to correct for the chromatic aberration I was talking about. Oh yeah, so, the ability to focus color. So that that's better than what Galileo had. So it can get up to about a one hundred magnification, I think. Now Galileo's magnification uh, made something of a of a kind of a, what's humorous now, but uh, uh, about a year and a half after he discovers uh, or he sees the moons of Jupiter, it's uh, the summer of 1610, and uh, Galileo observes Saturn, and uh, and he thought at first because of the low magnification there were sort of bumps coming out of the sides of of Saturn, and you know to him he thought after what he'd seen at Jupiter. That, that there must be the same kind of thing going on here. They're just very close, three separate bodies all in a line. Uh, and this, this, this idea of Saturn was really perplexing to him. Um, has Saturn perhaps devoured her children, because, his children, because <laughs> these, the, these bumps on the side of Saturn that he first saw disappeared? And at the time, in July of 1610, he did not know that he was looking at the rings of Saturn. And after their disappearance, the globes came again when each observer gave them a different shape according to his eyesight and the power and definition of his telescope. Uh And indeed, 40 years elapsed before Huygens, I think it's Huygens? Huygens. 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 With superior glasses, and we're going to talk a little bit about Huygens. Uh, He made some, uh, some improvements to his glass. And explained that all the oblongs of Saturn's and arcs were due to changes in the position of a broad, flat ring which encircled the planet. How fascinating this must have been to these people to see a planet with rings. I mean, this Yeah, so they they called them ears. Yeah, that's right. They they said Saturn has ears (laughs) because they didn't know what it was. That's right. uh, They couldn't couldn't make it out clearly. Right. Viva uh, la resolution, right? We want to see more clearly. 
we say that. It was really important for them. They were yeah. we didn't know what they were looking at. Mm-hmm. Uh, so later, it was Christian Huygens. Huygens uh, has experience with grinding lenses and working with glass, and um, so he made some good improvements to the refractor telescopes. Um, that made him able to make out a little better of the rings of Saturn. And uh, Huygens also discovered uh, Saturn's moon and Titan. Titan mm-hmm. is the largest of Saturn's moons. Mm-hmm. So it would have been the easiest to see with a telescope. Mm-hmm. Huygens did some good work, and he was uh, very good in mathematics. And he, so the early years of telescopes was a, the the scientists working on this had to be good with geometry and um, as well as working with the practical side of materials a little bit. Mm-hmm. And over time, they came up with better and better lenses, and then they started figuring out combinations of lenses that could be used together in smart ways. Mm-hmm. Like the, there's ways you can take a, a convex lens and put it right next to a concave lens so that the concave lens will correct for the chromatic aberration uh, mm. and and make the colors focus together more correctly. So they figured out ways of doing various things with lenses and mirrors uh, over time that improved telescopes a lot. And then we come to uh, later in the 17th century, with Isaac Newton, the whole chromatic aberration was still quite mysterious. Why were certain, why were colors the way they were? And Newton was the first one to consider that colors are qualities of white light and our perception of their combination. Yeah, so Newton showed that white light... Uh, what we would call white light is actually a combination of colors and you can spread the colors out and split mm-hmm. that up with a prism. Yeah. Look, look, I want to add something about Galileo before we get off of Galileo. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Dead. Yeah. Yeah. Galileo was a believer in God. Now he was, he would have been Catholic, but you know, there was a the whole uh, problem he went through where he was put on trial and he was made to recant his ideas about the Copernican astronomy, the, right, the right. sun being the center of, of the solar system. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's a book that I have that's called Project Physics, and it's an, it's an old uh, high school physics textbook. And this textbook does a lot of historical development about physics, which is interesting. And it has quite a bit about Galileo, as a matter of fact. Okay. There's a little paragraph. I want to read some. This this is talking about Galileo's faith. Okay. Uh, I thought this was really interesting. Okay. It says, uh, so he's talking about the whole controversy between the Pope and Galileo and how Galileo was getting in trouble with the Pope. (laughs) <laughs> it, it was a conflict there well they were them. friends uh we should say that uh, maffeo barberini who became pope urban uh maffeo was friends with galileo but once maffeo became pope yes then the relationship was strained because really what you have are as as some historians have t- described their relationship somewhat tempestuous they were both a little feisty yeah. and uh so the the history of the conflict between the church and science is really oftentimes misguided, and people overlook the uh, the personalities involved in this conflict, which is really Maffeo yes. and and Galileo. <laughs> yeah, it seems like a big factor in that whole story. Yes, it does. Anyway, go for it. What do we anyway, got? Anyway, it says among the many factors in this complex story, it is important to remember that Galileo considered himself religiously faithful. In letters of sixteen thirteen and sixteen fifteen. Galileo wrote that God's mind contains all the natural laws. Consequently, the occasional glimpses of these laws that scientists might gain are direct revelations of God, just as true as those in the Bible. 
And there it's quoting Galileo. He says, uh, from the divine word, the sacred scripture and nature did both alike proceed. Nor does God less admirably discover himself to us in nature's action than in the scripture's sacred, sacred dictions. So it's the idea of general revelation and uh, in in nature, which we would is the way we would describe it now. Yeah, God revealing. Uh, I think of, as you were reading that, I was thinking of Romans one that God reveals His invisible attributes to us through what He has made. Uh, that uh, that we are without excuse. Yes. That we see the handiwork of God in the heavens. Um, clearly understanding uh, God through what He has made. Yeah, I totally. That's that's really cool. Yep. But that idea was sometimes misunderstood to be referring to pantheism. Mm. And so uh, certain people who were believers with good intentions got in trouble over this sometimes. Yeah. Uh, Because it was taken as a denial of the Bible when actually it's right out of Romans 1. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But uh, We're not saying... It's not saying Galileo wasn't saying that uh, God is is in the stars and planets moving them about that that that, that there's something right. divine within stars and planets but that but that God is wholly other from his creation but nevertheless uh, as Hebrews says upholds everything by the word of his power. Yes, and I think it's important to add that uh um though God reveals himself in ways through nature it's not uh he doesn't reveal himself savingly in nature Correct. in other words it, it it's not enough information to um uh, know about how to come into a relationship with god or how to obey god it's it's just general revelation about his nature and it gives so, us uh creation is evidence of his existence but not sufficient to point us to Calvary and the cross and our need of salvation. Right. So it's still there's still the need for Scripture for the uh, for the details. <laughs> of course, of course. Yeah, so, well, that's fascinating. So by the time we're we're, we're we move on from Galileo, uh, we get to Newton, and it's with Newton that uh, we have, I think, uh, the first at least one of the first, if not the first, um, reflecting telescope. At least there is a kind of reflecting telescope called a Newtonian reflecting telescope. Um, But this is where mirrors come in, Wayne. Let's talk about that a little bit. So uh, Newton's design was pretty simple and a very good design in that uh, you, you have a tube, and this tube was likely to be wider than the old refractors. The skinny tubes of the refractors. Yeah, the, the refractors are the more skinny telescopes. Mm-hmm. And some of them were really long. Well, Newton's would be shorter, but what happens is the light comes in one end, which is open, and down at the bottom there's a concave mirror mm-hmm. that reflects the light back up, but it focuses it onto a small area. So there's a little mirror in the middle inside the tube and mm-hmm. that mirror uh, reflects Is that mirror is, is in Newton's design is really just a flat mirror mm-hmm. and it reflects the light out the side so you look into a hole in, a, in, a, in the side of the telescope and, but the light comes in the end and bounces off the bottom and goes out the side yeah you have a uh, a, a, a fascinating combination of the, the mirror at the bottom of this fatter tube that is concave, um, focusing a light to a, a flat mirror in the middle of the tube or somewhere thereabouts. And that flat mirror reflects the light from the concave mirror at the bottom to an eyepiece that I think the eyepiece has a convex surface to it, right? Or it could. Uh, no, the eyepiece. I don't think it would be. Yeah, I think it'd be convex. Yeah. Yes. So there's there's a convex lens involved, and a concave mirror involved, and a flat mirror yeah. involved, and uh, this gives an advantage. Now, why why do you think Wayne? I mean, it, it was easy to do glass lenses if they were small. Harder to do glass 
on a larger scale, as many people were discovering. But mirrors yeah. had a chief advantage in that uh, you think of the alchemy and, and the knowledge of metals in the 16th, 17th centuries, um, that people could create a, an alloy, a combination of tin and copper, usually it was, and be able to not only uh, polish it, to heat it, you needed to heat it, you needed to melt it, you needed to form it and shape it, and then the polishing was um, was essential. But the problem with the, the downside of that was that depending on your alloy, if you use a lot of copper, it tarnishes easily. So you're constantly having to to polish your mirrors. But this was advantageous, and at least it was easier to create bigger mirrors with metals than it was to create bigger lenses with glass. Uh, yes, and some of the early reflecting telescopes, they actually would have two different uh, mirrors because of the problem of the corrosion you're talking about. Yes, they would swap, yes. take one out and put another in. Right, right, Because it would right. take them some time to polish that down and clean it up. Uh, and then the polishing yeah. was just... It was incessant. I, I know we're going to talk about William Herschel here in a minute, but uh, William Herschel was uh, 18th century uh, astronomer in uh, England in Bath with his sister Caroline. Um, but uh, but Herschel became fanatical about telescope construction, and there's an account where uh, Caroline writes in her journal about how William was uh, polishing a, a metal mirror for 16 hours. Uh, but all the substances that you need, the kind of uh, mixture, the, the the method of polishing, the pressure, uh, you didn't want to scratch your lens or your mirror, of course, because that would lead to distortions of, of the images and whatnot. But the polishing yeah, yeah. became an exact science yeah. as well. <clears throat> yeah. So there was a lot of effort in making in making the lenses and the the mirrors but the polishing of the mirror was easier than the lenses because the lenses you had to get the shape right on both mm-hmm. sides of it uh whereas a mirror can be basically flat on one side and convex on the other mm-hmm. then there mm-hmm. were some mirrors that were para- parabolic uh and after the reflecting mirrors from Newton People got all sorts of other ideas for um, more complicated designs of reflector telescopes. And this led to the Cassegrain uh, designs. It's a man named Cassegrain who came up with an uh, interesting idea. And he take this led to a lot of the modern telescope designs, which was to you make a hole in the center of the uh, lens. See, you have a light that comes in one end, it goes through a lens, but the lens has a hole in the center. And then there's a reflecting mirror on the other end. And this is able to uh, keep you from having to have a really long tube. It makes you able to shorten Mm -hmm. it. And this is uh, important because when they tried to scale up the telescope, it became hard to support the whole thing in in some kind of structure because it would get really big and heavy and kind of hard to manage. Uh, so when they so they came up with these ways of basically making the shorter tube where the light bounces back and forth before you look at it, essentially. Uh, so that and some of them are very complex in how the geometry of it works, but. Um, they were able to get a lot of magnification, collect a lot of light without having to have a monstrously long tube. Speaking of monstrously long tubes, uh, it was Huygens who built a 123-foot refractor. So he th- this was not a reflector, but a, refla- a, reflector, a refractor that used lenses. But you can imagine how cumbersome and this is what was a problem in uh, the refracting technology. You just had to, your tubes just had to be longer and longer and longer for better focal lengths, more lenses. But uh, you can imagine how unimaginable uh, or how clumsy and how difficult it was to, what kind of material do you build to make something so long? Do you use wood or metal? And it was. Yeah, and then they had what they called aerial telescopes, Dan. Instead of having a tube, they just sort of say, well, forget the tube. Let's not make a tube. 
<laughs> so <laughs> right, they would right. they would have the lens up hanging up somewhere, and uh-huh. then they would have a a cable of some sort that would be tied to it, and so you just line up down at the, at the the area where you're standing as the observer. You have another lens, and mm. you're you're just lining it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And I would think that would be really difficult to get it lined up right. Mm. Mm. <laughs> there was a uh, a French gentleman in the 18th century. And we're speaking of mirrors here. Just a, 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 a quick note. His name was Molyneux. Molyneux, I think is how you pronounce it. Uh, he experimented with 150, 150 different alloys for reflective mirrors. So the, the alloy, basically, how many metals that you combine when you when you do molten, when you, you melt metals, you little parts of tin and copper and uh, whatever else was available to them. But 150 different alloys for uh, metal mirrors in reflecting telescopes there in the uh, mid-17th century or 18th century. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. This is Good Heavens, a podcast exploring the wonders of God's heavenly creation.